Well, Jesus said the word of God was truth. So if the Holy Spirit's going to guide us into the truth and the truth is the word, then he'll guide us into the word of God. Well, that's what he did to me. He quickened the word to my heart. He didn't put it in my heart. I did that by meditating in the word. I did that through the works and the efforts that I was in endeavoring. Even though I wasn't satisfied with the results that I was getting, even though I wasn't confident that I was doing things in the, the manner in which the Lord wanted me to, the fact remains that I was putting it in my heart and I gave God something to work with. And my way became prosperous. I had good success. Turn with me over to Romans chapter 5, please. Romans chapter 5, verse 17. Paul said, For if by one man's offense death reigned by one, talking about Adam's sin bringing spiritual death upon us all, much more they which receive the abundance of grace and of the gift of righteousness shall reign in life by one Jesus Christ. Now he said the criteria for reigning in life is to receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness. Well, that's salvation, isn't it? That's satisfied by salvation. But doesn't it have to go even further than that? See, if that's all there is to it, if, and, and I don't mean to speak disparagingly or to discount the importance of it because to do so would be an error. But if just getting saved was everything that was necessary to reign in life by Jesus, then wouldn't Christians be more successful than they are? How many believers do you know of that you would consider to be reigning in life by Jesus Christ? Looks to me like it's a pretty short percentage, a pretty no, low number. So there has to be something more to it than what Paul is talking about just being saved. When we're saved, we are delivered from sin, certainly. And when we're saved, we know that's by grace through faith. But there's got to be something more about receiving this abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness if it's going to bring about the results that Paul said that it would. Turn with me to chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, I'm going to begin in verse 1. It says, Know ye not, brethren, for I speak to them that know the law. How that the law has dominion over a man as long as he liveth. And he's going to use an example of marriage. For the woman which had a husband, has a husband, is bound by the law to her husband so long as he liveth. But if the husband be dead, she is loose from the law of her husband. So then, 
if while her husband liveth, she shall she be married to another man, she shall be called an adulteress. But if her husband be dead, she's free from that law, so that she is no adulteress, though she be married to another man. Wherefore, my brethren, you also are become dead to the law by the body of Christ, that you should be married to another, even to him that is raised from the dead, that we should bring forth fruit unto God. He's saying just like the law holds a husband and wife together as long as the husband lives, in the same way, sin held us until Jesus died. And then, rather than being married to another man, as in the illustration, the church is joined again to Jesus, the risen Christ, the risen Savior, free from the old bondage. Verse 5, for when we were in the flesh, that's talking about unsaved, before we were saved, the motions of sin which were by the law did work in our members to bring forth fruit unto death. But now we are delivered from the law, that being dead wherein we were held, that we should not that we should serve in newness of spirit and not in the oldness of the letter. What shall we say then? Is the law sin? God forbid. Nay, I had not known sin but by the law. For I had not known lust except the law had said thou shalt not covet. Folks, I want you to realize that Paul is identifying what the purpose of the law of Moses was to show us what sin was and to reveal to us that we needed a Savior. The law was designed to show you you didn't have a prayer of obtaining your own righteousness through your own actions. Well, it did its job, didn't it? Anytime we try to put our behavior or our position judge it against righteousness, we always come short. But sin, taking occasion by the commandment, wrought in me all manner of concupiscence. That just means lust for forbidden things. For without the law, sin was dead. For I was alive without the law once, but when the commandment came, sin revived and I died. And the commandment which was ordained to life, I found to be unto death. Notice verse 11. For sin, taking occasion by the commandment, deceived me, and by it slew me. I want you to see that Paul is saying that even in the life of the believer, and in so many lives, maybe the majority of the church world, sin has still deceived them even though they've been released from the bondage of sin, even though we're married not to the old husband, which was the law, but through Christ's death, we now are married to the risen Savior. For sin taking occasion by the commandment deceived me, and by it slew me. How does sin slay us? How does sin slay the believer? Well, it doesn't say, it slay us in context with stopping eternal life. It doesn't have that power.
but it can stop us from reigning in life. Paul goes on to say, wherefore the law is holy and the commandment holy and just and good was then that which is made good, which is good made death unto me was then that which is good made death unto me, God forbid. But sin, that it might appear sin, working death in me by that which is good, that sin by the commandment might become exceeding sinful. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am carnal, sold under sin. For that which I do, I allow not. For what I would or want to do, that do I not. But what I hate, that do I. We're going to get a bird's eye view into Paul's meditating in the word. Now Paul had the same training as the high priest. A part of that training required the priest to memorize the law and the prophets. Paul had done that. Paul was a, a fabulous choice from God's standpoint because he knew what the Old Testament was. He knew what the Old Testament was about. And so when Jesus met him on the road to Damascus, finding out that Jesus was alive, which means he was risen from the dead, absolutely changed everything about Paul's existence. But Paul comes to the place after he's saved, after he sees, sees and experiences the things and the power of God. Paul still realizes he doesn't have control over his body. Paul can't make himself stop sinning. And he's identified to his credit. He's identified the difference between the inner man and the outer man. He's come to the realization that since his body is doing things, sinful things, that he doesn't want to do from the inside. That it's not the man on the inside, the real him that's doing it. That's further than most Christians ever get. That's a greater understanding than most believers will ever attain. So what does he do? If he stopped there and said, well, I know it's not the real me on the inside that's wanting to do the wrong things because the real me on the inside hates what the man on the outside's doing. But he goes further. Through speaking the word, he knows that God's reconciliation plan was designed to make man righteous. He knows that God, through Jesus' sacrifice, has made him righteous. But being made righteous doesn't give him the power to stop his body from sinning. Folks, here's where the devil will try to grind you up into powder. 
because you and I both know that we should not sin. And assuming we haven't violated our conscience, our conscience still speaks to us and brings guilt to us because we know that we should not do the things that our body has done or does. So Paul's trying to find an answer. I think one of the overlooked areas of the Bible has to do with Paul and his missionary journeys. Paul, through his missionary endeavors and his travels, literally brought the word to almost the whole world. We know something about the Roman church. Paul tells us himself in the letters that he writes to them that he wishes he could have come to them. But he didn't. He eventually made it when he appealed to Caesar and finally got to Rome. But at the time that he's writing the letter that we know of as the book of Romans, Paul hadn't been able to get there. And because he had what had not been able to get there, he writes to them the doctrine that he would have taught them if he had come. If Paul had made it to Rome like he wanted to and like he endeavored to do, we would have no knowledge of the doctrine that he taught. He didn't mention anything, certainly not in the detail that he goes into in the book of Romans, to the Corinthian church, he went there several times. And he wrote several letters to them. Actually, he wrote four letters. We have record of two of them. But the letters that he writes to the Corinthians don't contain the doctrine that we see in his letter to the Romans. Now, I don't at all believe that Paul's taught different doctrines to different churches. That wouldn't make sense. Thank God that we have what we have written to the Romans. So Paul is at the point where he sees there's a difference between the inside, the man on the inside, and the man on the outside. The man on the inside is the to the point where the man on the inside hates it. For that which I do I allow not. But what I would or what I want to do, that I do not. But what I hate, that's what my flesh continues to do. If then I do that which I would or want, don't want to do, I consent to the law that it is good. Now then it is no more I that do it, but sin that dwelleth in me. Here's where Paul's meditation is brought into. It's not the man on the inside, the man that he calls I, the real me. It's the man on the outside. For I know that is in my flesh dwelleth no good thing. For the will is present with me, but how to perform that which is good, I find not. Now folks, understand what he's saying. You remember Jesus talking to his disciples 
and even to the Jews on several occasions, said, my will is to do the will of him that sent me. I always do my father's will, he said. I always do the things that please my father, he said. Paul's saying the same thing. He's saying, I always want to do the right thing. The man on the inside is just as committed to do the will of God as Jesus was. I just haven't found the way to stop my flesh from sinning. By disconnecting the sin in his life committed by his own flesh from the real him, the man on the inside. And remember, Paul's the one that tells us about the threefold part of man. I pray, God, your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless under the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He knew that he was spirit, soul, and body. He knew that the man on the inside, the real him, the one that departed from this flesh at his death and went to heaven to be in the presence of the Lord, he knew that real man on the inside always wanted to do right. Just like you and me. The man on the inside always wants to follow God. The man that's been saved, the man or the woman that's been saved and made new by the blood of Jesus, always, always, always wants to do the right thing. See, one of the ways that the devil works against us is that he tells us that since we can't control the actions of our body, since we can't stop our body from sinning, that means that we've not really saved, or that means we're not really made righteous. That means we really don't have the will of God as our first and foremost priority, and none of those things are true. Paul's showing us his own struggle He's showing us how he overcame it. Verse 19, for the good that I want to do, I don't do. But the evil which I don't want, that's what I do. Now then, if I do that which I would not, it is no more I that does it but sin that dwelleth in me. I find then a law that when I would do good or want to do good, evil is present with me. I want you to notice what he's saying, folks. He's saying this is the way a specific law works. And this specific law is always going to be in effect until Jesus comes back and we receive our redeemed bodies. Your flesh is always going to want to do the wrong thing. Your flesh is always going to want to do the wrong thing. And guess what? That does not stop you from being the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. When you come to that realization, the devil loses a lot of his hold on you. It breaks the grip of sin over your life. So Paul said, I find a law that when I would or want to do good, evil is present with me. For I delight in the law of God 
after the inward man. Now, folks, you can train your bodies to delight in the law of God to a certain degree. But there's always going to be that law that he talked about where sin is present with you. Not the man on the inside, not from who you really are. The real you. But from your flesh. For I delight in the law of God after the inward man. But I see another law in my members, warring against the law of my mind. Now the mind he speaks of is not specifically the soul. It's talking about the, in, the difference between the inner man and the outer man. So when he says, when I see another law in my members warring against the law of my mind, he's talking about warring against the law of the inward man who always wants to do right. And this law that wars against the law of, the, of his mind or the inward man and brings him into captivity to the law of sin which is in my members. He's saying you can't overcome that. He's saying you can't ever do away with that. O wretched man that I am, who shall deliver me from the body of this death? I thank God through Jesus Christ our Lord, so that with the mind or the inner man, I myself serve the law of God, but with the flesh, the outer man, I serve the law of sin. Chapter 8, verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation to them which are in Christ Jesus. Why is condemnation all of a sudden an important thing? Because it's the condemnation that got him conf confessing the word, studying the word, coming to the understanding of who he is in Christ that enabled him to receive the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness that enabled him to, to reign in life. Now you may notice that I didn't quote the whole verse of Romans 8.1. Notice the last part, who walk not after the flesh, but after the spirit. If you look at the original translations, if you look at the original text, that phrase is not there. It's not in verse 1. So the translators come to the place, they understand what Paul is saying. The translators come to the place where Paul is saying that there's always a law of sin in my members. No matter what you do, no matter how much you pray, no matter how much you confess the word, the law of sin in your members or your law of sin in your flesh is always going to be in operation. Always. But when you come to the reality that Jesus sacrificed saved you or redeemed you from all unrighteousness then you can say with Paul the man on the inside always wants to do the right thing and even though the man on the outside keeps us from doing the right thing in some cases or in some instances there's no condemnation to them that are in Christ but the translators seem to be guilty of the same thing that the modern day church is guilty of. And that is trying to reestablish their own law to try to gain or attain righteousness through their own actions. And it never works. It's not even what you're supposed to be trying for or striving for. This phrase, who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit, was pulled up from verse 4. Now why did the translators pull it up into verse 1? 
folks, the only explanation I can give to you is that it, it seemed to them, even as it seems to most people in the body of Christ today, that there's got to be something that we can do or should do or strive to do to make righteousness a reality for us in our lives. But folks, there is something that we can do, but it has nothing to do with our own actions. We can accept the sacrifice of Jesus and only accept the sacrifice of Jesus to make us righteous. See, most people get saved and then find the, the difficulty the powerlessness over sin in their flesh. And because of that, they spend their entirety of, of their life here on the earth wishing that they could be better or trying to be better rather than accepting what Jesus did and accepting only what Jesus did and accepting the truth of our righteousness. Well, good luck with that. Because you'll never be satisfied. There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus. How do you think the devil would beat you up if you were the one that put Christians in jail? How do you think if we put ourselves in Paul's position you think that Satan gave Paul a free pass on consenting to the death of Stephen? Paul comes on the doctrine of reconciliation which means to change or exchange mutually we know this doctrine of reconciliation from the things that he preaches. We know, for example, in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, it says, God made Jesus to be sin for us who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Christ. I think most Christians just automatically think that God laid our sins over on him, but that he wasn't really made sin. Well, folks, if he wasn't really made sin, then this doctrine of exchange didn't work. Because if Jesus was not made sin, you cannot be made righteous. Now that sets with the doctrine of a lot of Christians because they don't really believe they've been made righteous anyway. They believe that it, somehow or another God just kind of appointed it to us. But we know that we're not really righteous and we'll never be righteous until Jesus comes and brings us a redeemed body. But folks, that's the kind of thinking that keeps you from doing the works that Jesus did. And it certainly keeps you from the greater works. It's only by absolutely abandoning yourself to the sacrifice of the shed blood of Jesus that you can truly accept yourself as being righteous in God's eyes as well as your own. 
There is therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus, for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. Because you've made Jesus the Lord of your life, you are free from the law of sin and death no matter how many times you sin in the flesh. Now some people will hear these things, hear this teaching, and say, well, you're just giving people a license to sin. I found that people sin with or without a license. <laughs> the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. A law can never be broken. I'm talking about from God's side, not from ours. God has established the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. How did Paul know that? Show me anywhere else where it talks about the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Paul didn't go back to the Old Testament prophets and pull this phrase out of the, of the air. You can't find anything like this. And remember, Paul said that the whole of the body of Christ, every generation of the body of Christ will be judged by his gospel will be judged by the good news that he preaches. What is his gospel? Part of it is the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Part of it is the ministry of exchange or the ministry of reconciliation. The absolute change, mutual exchange. He became sin so that we become righteous. You don't see Peter telling us that. You don't see James telling us that. How did Paul come to that place? Folks, Paul struggled with condemnation to such a degree that he got the answers. There is no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made me free from the law of sin and death. For what the law could not do in that it was weak through the flesh. God sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh and for sin condemned sin in the flesh that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh but after the spirit. That's where that phrase belongs. Skip down with me to verse 8. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit, if so be that the spirit of God dwells in you. He's saying you're not in the flesh if you're saved. There is no, therefore now no condemnation to them that are in Christ Jesus for the law of the spirit of life in Christ Jesus has made us free from the law of sin and death that the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who are the believers, who are the church. He talks about being spiritually minded versus carnally minded. He's talking to us about the renewing of the mind. But he's saying we're not even considered to be in the flesh since we've made Jesus the Lord of our lives. And the Holy Ghost dwells on the inside of us. 
I wonder how long Paul had to meditate on the word before he came to some of these conclusions. I don't think this is a revelation that Paul received in an easy manner. I believe these are things that Paul received after spending a great amount of time with the Lord himself. But look at what he what he was discovered. Look at the truth, the reality that he attained. He came to the understanding that Jesus' sacrifice was holy and complete. He came to the reality that the shed blood of Jesus overcomes anything and everything that the devil would lay against us. He came to the reality that receiving the abundance of grace and the gift of righteousness brings us to a place where we reign in life. He's talking about putting the word of God to work for you. He's talking about calling on the power of the Holy Spirit to put you in the place that God wants you to be. He's talking about how to live up to the righteousness that you were made by the shed blood of Jesus. Verse 8 again. So then they that are in the flesh cannot please God, but you are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If so, be that the spirit of God dwells in you. Do you see that? If the Holy Ghost indwells you, He's saying that qualifies you for being in the spirit. Which means there's nothing that can be laid against you. No condemnation that can be laid against you. There's no condemnation that can keep you from being righteous. The righteousness that Jesus obtained for us by offering his blood and his sacrifice. You are not in the flesh but in the spirit. If so be that the spirit of God dwells in you. Now, if any man have not the Spirit of Christ, he is none of his. And if Christ be in you, through salvation, the body is dead because of sin, but the Spirit is life because of righteousness. But if, or since, the Spirit of him that raised up Jesus from the dead dwell in you, he that raised up Christ from the dead shall also quicken your mortal bodies by his Spirit that dwells in you. Folks, that's a statement that's made without qualification. No ifs, ands, or buts. There's no lucky ones that stand above the crowd in this. If the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he will quicken your mortal bodies. Now the quickening of the Holy Ghost can mean a number of things. He can quicken you from sickness and disease. But he can also quicken you from sin. See, Paul has given you the ammunition that he discovered. Remember, he's the one that told us the weapons of our warfare are not carnal or earthly. But they're mighty through God to the pulling down of strongholds. How did he discover these things? 
by the quickening of the power of God. What was he quickened to? He was quickened by the Holy Spirit into the truth of the word. Folks, you will never be more righteous than you are at this moment. Let me ask you a question. If Jesus appeared right here to us and said, I'll be coming back Friday. I'll be coming back to receive you. What would you do this next week? I think at the very least, people would try to live right. I think at the very least, they would try to put away sin in their flesh. You know what that would attain for you? Absolutely nothing. I hope I'm not overstating the case here. But in that case, trying to live right for the next week till Jesus comes back for us. I think we would be met on Friday by Jesus saying, why'd you waste a week? Why did you waste a week trying to attain something that was already made yours by my blood? Well, Pastor Mike, are you saying we shouldn't try to live right? No, I'm not saying that at all. I'm saying that trying to live right doesn't give you a greater standing with God than the standing he's already given you through the sacrifice of Jesus, his son. This book of the law shall not depart out of your mouth, but thou shalt dwell meditate therein, that thou mayest observe to do according to all that's written therein. For then thou shalt make thy way prosperous, and then thou shalt have good success. Folks, there's nothing you can do there's nothing you've ever done that takes God off of your side. No matter what the devil tells you, no matter what he tries to throw up in, in your face, no matter what picture of things gone by that he tries to show you, there is absolutely nothing that you can do in your flesh that keeps God from being on your side. And if God's on your side then that automatically means all the promises of God are yours. There is nothing, absolutely nothing you can do in your flesh that disqualifies you from the promises of God. He knew who you were before he sent Jesus. He knew the struggles you'd have with your flesh before he made salvation a universal thing. He knows your deepest and darkest secrets. And whatever they are, they will never be enough to keep him from loving you and providing victory for you if you'll just put him to work. Let's pray.
Father, open our eyes to who we really are in you. Open our eyes, Lord, that we may see that not only do you not condemn us, but that you have never condemned us and that you never will condemn us. We say what your word says. We are the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus. We are made righteous by the precious blood of Jesus. And nothing that we do or endeavor to do will ever make us more righteous than we've already been made. Open our eyes, Father. <clears throat> Give us the spirit of wisdom and revelation and the knowledge of you <clears throat> that we may know what is the hope of your calling. That we may know what the riches of the glory of your inheritance in the saints is and that we may know the exceeding greatness of your power that works in us as believers. Thank you, Father, that you are on our side. You are with us, you are for us, and you are in us, and always will be. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for a complete and total salvation. Thank you, Father, for a complete, absolute righteousness. In Jesus' precious name, amen. Let's all stand together. Will you make a confession with me? Say this after me. I will not fear, for God is with me. I will not be dismayed for he is on my side. He strengthens me. He upholds me. He helps me. No weapon formed against me shall prosper. And every tongue that rises against me in judgment I do hereby condemn. This is my heritage as a child of God and my righteousness is of God. Hallelujah. 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 Blessed be your name, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for being made sin, that we might be made righteous. Say it again. I am the righteousness of God in Christ Jesus.